Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 19th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 19. In today's text, the author of Hebrews begins to explain how the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood in the order of Aaron. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be back. Thank you, Tim. So we get started today. Talk to us about the book of Hebrews and especially the context for chapter 7, the middle section that we've got today. So Hebrews is a, a very um, Old Testament-heavy book. Uh, is maybe one of the best things to know first off. Multiple, like the whole thing is littered with references to things like the Sabbath, uh, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, Mosaic Law, Levitical priesthood, especially today that we'll be talking about. And um, some people I've heard it described as kind of like a long sermon uh, with a letter attached at the end. And of course, as we say with our um, homiletical training uh, from seminary, the best sermons or the good, you know, good sermons have Christ at the center. They point to Christ, and that's exactly what Hebrews does. Uh, and we'll get into a lot of that in this particular chapter uh, and verses today. Um, interestingly, as, as some of our hearers might already be familiar with, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, the name of the author is nowhere attached to the book, as is the case with many other New Testament writings. Um some people thought it was Apollos. I think Luther thought it was Apollos. And then some thought Barnabas, one of Paul's helpers. And then Paul has been argued by some. Um, ultimately, it doesn't, it's it's rather immaterial because with other books, you can kind of look to the author to say, here's some context clues for how he writes and what he does. But ultimately here, uh, we really don't need the author, obviously, um, to see that this is a fantastic treatment of Old Testament theology uh, in connection with Christology, um, portraying Jesus as uh, we see in chapter 3. He's uh, The author says he's greater than Moses, and he is the great high priest um, in comparison to all other high priests in the Old Testament. Um, so the, I think one of the big challenges in understanding uh, this entire book is if you don't have much familiarity with the Old Testament, you might need a bit of a memory jog uh, on just, you know, the structure of the Old Testament, the narrative, and then in particular the Israelite laws, the priesthood. That is leaned on heavily, especially in our chapter um, and the verses we'll cover today. And it, it's a challenge because I think the Old Testament is, is looked at a little bit suspiciously today, or maybe it's regarded as, eh, that that's all way, way in the past, and uh, some would even argue, you know, it's not about Jesus, which is completely not true. The Old Testament is all about Jesus, and that's what I love about Hebrews. That makes that um, completely clear. It's it, there, There's no hiding it. There's a lot of transparency. This is 
um, the Old Testament is pointing, you know, full blast toward Christ, and we see it in so many different places. And so, you know, rather than the Old Testament being irrelevant, I mean, Jesus himself used the Old Testament, affirmed it as authoritative, relevant, um, even in his day, reading from the scrolls in the synagogue and referencing it all that. Um, maybe the best gospel to look at as far as, you know, where does the strong connection with the Old Testament and Jesus come? You look at Matthew, who makes a lot of Old Testament references as well. Um, and Luther uh, has a really good quote um, on Hebrews that highlights this. Um, it's a fine epistle. It discusses Christ's priesthood masterfully and profoundly on the basis of the scriptures and extensively interprets the Old Testament in a fine way. And I like what he says there. This is what we call uh, biblical theology, where you let scripture interpret scripture. You understand one portion of the scriptures by looking at another portion of the scriptures that interprets it um, and sheds light on the meaning. And that's exactly what Luther sees Hebrews doing. Um, and in terms of the immediate context, um, there's, I mean, there's so much to say. Sorry, there's my phone. Um, there's so much to say about uh, this guy, Melchizedek. We're going to get into that um, quite a bit in our recording here. But from chapter 6, verse 19 through 7, verse 10, that's pretty much all about this guy named Melchizedek leading into our pericope. And then after that, you get to the end of chapter 7. Um, it's just further cementing Jesus with his identity portrayed here in the book of Hebrews as our perfect great high priest. He is blameless, like a spotless uh, lamb that was sacrificed. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is the one who was able to save and has saved us. Um, he's innocent, exalted, the once and for all sacrifice for our salvation. Um, so the author really moves towards this in the first few chapters where he surpassed Moses He's our great high priest. Now he's going to move into a little bit of a comparison between the Levitical priesthood um, headed up by Aaron and the tribe of Levi um, when the people of Israel went out of Egypt and went into uh, the wilderness wanderings and then into Canaan. Um, this priesthood was um, kind of anchored in the tribe of Levi, but it's going to say here, and this is huge for our text today, that was temporary, it was imperfect, and it was something that necessitated something better, uh, is the language that Hebrews uses, or we might say something that um, eliminates the need for anything else, um, which is not what the Levitical priesthood did, but what Christ did. So that's I, there's a lot you could say about the context, but those are the things that really, as I studied this, helped me understand um, this text in particular. <clears throat> So, as you said, we're in a section where that quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, where you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that's, that's pretty well his sermon text at this point. If you want to think about this as a sermon, that's the text that he's preaching on at this point in the sermon. And we saw at length yesterday in verses 1 to 10, he went through the narrative where Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14 and made a lot of points that help us to see why the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Aaron or to the order of Levi. Uh, maybe just by way of review, because this text follows right after that, help us to remember a few of those key points about Melchizedek, especially those that are going to be important for our text today. Right. 
So there's a few mentions of Melchizedek in the scripture, and we've covered them all already. Um, Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, which is the historical narrative mention of Melchizedek. Um, Abraham has just returned from defeating uh, four different kings in the first part of Genesis 14, and so he brings back all these spoils, and notably, excuse me, not only does he um, acknowledge Melchizedek as the high priest, but he gives tithes to him, um, a tenth, and this is like the best of what he's brought back, so he's modeling what you would normally do with the high priest, and um, the important one of the important points from the Genesis reference, you know, if you were just reading that in isolation, you might really not care about Melchizedek going forward because he's kind of the shadowy figure that comes in and out, like two verses, three verses, I guess, in in Genesis 14, where it's like this guy comes back, meets uh, Abraham, and receives a tithe and blesses Abraham, and then he's gone. But then we get to Psalm 110, verse 4, where... Um, there's the phrase, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that reference we're going to get to a little bit later in our text, um, but the basic idea is it's it's really a preview of who Christ is. He's the one uh, who does not die. He is forever a priest, and that is modeled after this guy Melchizedek, as we're going to see as he's described. Um, and then we have the mention of him not just here in chapter 7, but at the end of chapter 6, and then also chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. So he's a really prominent figure in Hebrews, almost more so than when he's even mentioned um, the very first time in Genesis. So here's just a few things to keep in mind about him. He was a historical figure um, who lived during the time of Abraham. He was both king and priest. That's the way he's described. Uh, we don't know exactly which kingly line from which he comes or um, where, you know, what capital he's ruling over, uh, where he is serving as king and priest. Um, but the fact that they're not mentioned makes them rather inconsequential um, because the scriptures didn't see it fit to mention that. Um, he likely lived in the land of Canaan because he's meeting Abraham. Um, and uh, our, our uh, one of my commentaries made this point. He must have been preserving that faithful, true religion of Noah because he's not a Canaanite priest. He's um, a priest of the Most High God, so not a priest of a God. It's the Most High God, which excludes the po- excludes the possibility that he was a polytheistic priest or something. Um, and so here, this is where it gets a little confusing when you go to um, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. It says he lacks a genealogy and a mother and a father, um, which is really confusing. So it's like he's... Is he like Jesus, where he's just always existed? And the answer is no. Um, he's a human figure, right? So he is a, he was conceived and born and died eventually. Um, so what's this language referring to? Um, well, it's kind of, if, you, if you're familiar with, or our hearers are familiar with this idea of typology, um, it's, it's a device used in Scripture, and, I mean, this requires multiple discussions on what does it mean, uh, where are the examples, but... Very, very briefly, it's basically an occurrence when someone or something in the past uh, prefigures someone or something in the future, right? So the type is the thing in the past, and it's anti-type, the thing it was kind of foreshadowing, is the thing in the future, right? Um, So Melchizedek, you could say, was a type of Christ, um, meaning his lack of genealogy or mention of parents 
was really a foreshadowing of Jesus, the great high priest, who even though obviously born of Mary, um, he has no beginning, no end, the Alpha and the Omega, um, as we see in Revelation. Um, he even look at John, the gospel that reiterates this. Um, he was with God in the beginning. You know, he's the one who created all things. And he says in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am. So I always have been, I always will be. Um, so seven verse three simply means though Melchizedek had parents, it's inconsequential in terms of he's foreshadowing Christ. We're not going to mention him because he's kind of a, um, a preview of what we see in Jesus. Um, and in terms of anything else we know about Melchizedek, there's, this is the fullest treatment we get of him, but we'll get into him a little bit more in terms of why is the author of Hebrews so intent on mentioning him here if the rest of the scriptures have no interest in doing it really besides these you know four verses three in genesis 14 and one in psalm 110 but as we'll see it's really a masterful a device that the author author of hebrews uses to respond to people who are doubting that christ really is um, the great high priest the one who um you know takes the place of that little levitical priesthood and really eliminates it um he's going to use it to say um, yeah, this is, Jesus is the real deal, and I'm going to use Melchizedek to really demonstrate that, as we'll see. All right, so let's take a look at our text for today. Nice. This is Hebrews 7, beginning at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. That is our text for today. That's Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. So again, with that background information that you gave us on Melchizedek in mind and the way that the writer of Hebrews has set that up in the first 10 verses, he says in verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So help us see how the writer of Hebrews works here. That word perfection is really um, operative here, where the the Greek word would probably refer a little bit closely more to completion or, you know, eliminating the need for anything else is the basic idea. So, I the first thing I thought of honestly was a commercial for the Lexus cars, which maybe our hearers are familiar with. It's Lexus, the passionate pursuit of perfection, which I think is a great slogan because 
perfection means you can't improve upon it, but Lexus cars are always, I mean, they always have to keep coming out with new ones, right? So you got to keep buying them and buying them because they can't ever be perfect. So you're going to have to keep buying them, pursuing that. Anyway. Um, Genius. That, yeah, that's the problem in verse 11 is uh, perfection cannot be attained, um, especially through the Levitical priesthood. They give the law out and by its very nature, the law can't be fulfilled by people. Um, so the perfection that they're looking for can't be reached. Um, and here, so here's a, a great way to introduce maybe a, another context factor is who was receiving this letter, um, who did the author of Hebrews have in mind as he was writing it. And so here, here's one of the comments I found from uh, one of the commentaries I reference. Um, the readers, former Jews, who are now thinking of returning to Judaism, are here confronted with their great forefather, Abraham, and are shown how he accepted the royal priest Melchizedek long before Levi and Aaron were born and the Aaronic priesthood had come into existence. The readers want to be true sons of Abraham. Yes, indeed, and are thinking of returning to Judaism for that very reason. But then let them look at Abraham and at the one priest to whom Abraham bowed. Let them consider what God said through David, this is Psalm 110, regarding this royal priest and regarding the Messiah Christ who is typified by Melchizedek. Again, there's that type, anti-type. So here um, we have a little bit more insight into why is Melchizedek so instrumental in the argument here or the, um, the narrative he was an instrument meant to contrast the great high priest Jesus with the lesser priesthood of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. Um, so the Jewish readers that are reading this need to see you can't go back to this Levitical priesthood for what you desire, and that's um, salvation, really, and a right standing before God. Um, the law of Moses, the laws that the Levitical priests gave out and, and kept— um, they couldn't grant salvation. Only Jesus, they can't bring perfection, right? Only Christ is perfect. Um, and here's a, a great comment I, I found in, in one of the footnotes in um, the study Bible I used. It is not, the law is not able to make right those who sin by breaking it, nor can it give the power necessary to fulfill its demands. Um, so this is what the author is saying. You can't reach perfection through the law by keeping the law. Um, this was the temptation for the, the readers, and it's our temptation as well. Um, there's a quote I, I heard in a, a TV series I was watching recently, I think is um, an apt portrayal of how people think. It, it goes, people will do anything to get rid of their anxiety. And there's plenty of means to do that. The typical ones are tip, are usually material, have to do with wealth, power, whatever it might be. But ultimately, um, a lot of people look to what they do, right? Keeping whatever set of laws they think they need to keep to feel good about themselves. Um, this is what our anxiety pushes us towards, and we have to resolve it. We have to get rid of that anxiety. It's almost like running a low-grade fever constantly. We got to find the medicine that takes it away. And usually it's, um, we, we try to be perfect. We try to, if you're a Christian, especially fulfill God's law and say, look at how good of a Christian I am. Um, but this verse is especially 
pertinent because it says if it had been able, perfection were attainable through the law, you wouldn't need Jesus is essentially what it's saying. But this is where it's it's one of those special clauses in Greek. It's an if-then clause. Like if you could be perfect through the law, then you wouldn't need Jesus. But the answer is no, you can't be perfect through the law. So we need something else. We need something better. And that's what this pericope is going to expand on even more as we move through it. Yeah, well, and even just the way that that reads, then if if this perfection had been attainable through Le- Leviticus, then why does why does God in Psalm one hundred ten bother to bring up this order of Melchizedek anymore? Mm-hmm. If if the priesthood in the order of Levi and Aaron could do the job, then there's no need for another priesthood. But because there is another priesthood mentioned in Psalm one hundred ten verse four, going back to the narrative of Genesis fourteen, then something must not be quite right. Something's not quite attainable with the Levitical priesthood. And and again, perfection, I think, as you've been saying, in the sense of we cannot be righteous according to the law, and also perfection in the sense of completeness. The the Levitical priesthood couldn't complete the job. There, there needed to be another priest, another order of priests to finish the job that God intended for the priests, and, and it just wasn't going to happen for the priests in the order of Levi. So this order of Melchizedek is brought up. And so that's that's where he starts. Now he continues then into verse 12. He says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And into 13, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Let's Let's stick with verse 12, I think, first. Help us into that verse. So here, when he talks about a change in the priesthood, that's exactly what you just mentioned with that Psalm 110 verse 4 reference. Um, I heard it described, it's a complete termination of the Aaronic priesthood, which was superseded by the Melchizedekian. Say that one five times fast. It's like Melchizedekian. Melchizedekians would be a good name for a heavy metal band. Yes. Melchizedekians. Yeah, you heard it here first. Um, the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus, the Son of God, that's what supersedes Aaron and this Levitical priesthood. Um, so it's it's as though, you know, these these laws, these priests are um they're keep they're curbing unrighteousness. They are there's actually atonement for sin that's happening, but it was all based on, I mean, it's tied to the blood of Christ that was going to be shed, not the blood of beasts. Uh, what I don't remember what the the name of the hymn is. Uh, not all the blood of beasts. Not all the blood of beasts. I think it's our, one of our Lenten hymns yep. on Jewish altars slain. Um, and then could give the guilty conscience peace or clear away the stain. Again, make us whole again. Something I'm like that. Look it up. You keep talking. Yeah, um, that's essentially what he's saying. Um, so there's a change in the law, change in the priesthood. Um, so their priestly duties on behalf of the people um, were not meant to direct them to something permanent or, or get them thinking like this is how it's always going to be. Um, they were temporary until something else that was better was in place. Now, it doesn't mean they were bad or they were pointless, um, but really they were tied directly to the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice that Hebrews describes as Christ or his shed blood um, was the blood that cleansed our sins, and the blood of these animals was always, you know, had the foundation of Christ, the promise of Christ's blood connected to them. So it wasn't these saved them, it's the faith that these are based on the Messiah who's going to come and shed his blood 
for us, um, and that's the permanent thing. That's what this whole you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek is. Jesus would not die forever. He would not stay dead in contrast to these other priests who kept dying and being succeeded by another priest who would die and just keep going and going. Um, so this priesthood, um, the law, the game changes, you might say. Um, it couldn't do what Jesus needed to do, which was completely pardon the sins of the people. Um, it wasn't faith in these Levitical priests that saved Israel, but rather faith in that promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15, um, where the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, right, and come along and set things right when our sin brought corruption into the world and set things wrong, essentially. Um, and this is really comforting because, um, you know, when you think about changing, a changing in the law um, means that you're not following this law anymore and you were never meant to see it as a, a way to attain righteousness. But even connection back in verse 11 um, it's something that says you don't focus on these anymore. You focus on the one who kept the law perfectly, who fulfilled it, who was perfect in your place and gave you that perfection. Um, we don't look to written codes and laws for perfection. Uh, and this is really great because we were we were talking about this in youth group uh, just two, three weeks ago. We're, we're discussing world religions and we're contrasting. Uh, on, in particular, we were contrasting Christianity and Islam, but Really, any other major religion you look at in the world is is always, always based on you you attain salvation. Um, we call it works religion of works versus religion of grace, and Christianity truly is the only religion of grace that says um, God is the one who gives you salvation as a free gift. Um, every other belief system requires human effort to get up to their God and achieve whatever salvation they offer. Christianity is the only one that's true, obviously, um, and it's the only one that says you can't do anything. God comes down to you in Christ and became incarnate and lived perfectly, fulfilled the law, died in your place, that sacrificial atonement, and then was raised for your justification. Um, and then all of that perfection is given to you in holy baptism. And I, th I think that's one of the main things that Hebrews is trying to exhibit, too, is um, not only is this stuff fulfilled, but even if it, you know, if you went back to that, you couldn't get what you're looking for in that perfection here. Um, yeah. So that's the changing of the law is what it's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to keep following this line of thinking from the writer of Hebrews on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Joel Heckman this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. 
LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 19th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 19 with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchie, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we looked at verses 11 and 12. The author continues into verses 13 and 14 by saying this, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So it seems with those two verses, the author is uh, anticipating perhaps an objection that his hearers might have. Right. And this is, I want to share a quote that um, John Kleinig wrote the Concordia Commentary on Hebrews. Uh, and he has an excellent kind of layout of what the argument is. Um, so he says, for us to follow his the author's argument, we need to understand two assumptions that were taken for granted by him, the teacher, the author, and his congregation. The first assumption is about the role of God's law in the Old Testament in establishing the priesthood. The law of Moses authorizes the priests to act as God's agents. Without the law, they have no authority to act. So from that perspective, the claim that Jesus is God's new high priest is problematic and illegal because he does not meet the basic ritual requirements. In fact, his membership in the tribe of Judah disqualifies him from the Levitical priesthood. The second assumption is that God can intervene more immediately to establish a new royal and priestly dynasty. The authority is by divine power rather than divine law. By his resurrection, God established um, Jesus' priestly status in the order of Melchizedek. So the basic objection is, okay, go back to the Levitical priesthood. How did you become a priest? Well, you had the right bloodline, right? You were part of that tribe of Levi. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, um, descended of David. So obviously that's a completely different tribe. And so they'd say, well, Jesus can't be a priest. He doesn't have the proper bloodline. Um, but then, uh, you know, the argument is basically God is God and he can do what he wants do what he wants, and he establishes a completely new priesthood that, again, was prefigured by Melchizedek, um, and the criteria that met this was you um, are Christ, basically. You're the only one that can hold this fully. Um, even though Melchizedek previewed that, he wasn't obviously on the same level as Christ. He's just a sinful human being who points to Jesus, um, and it's, it's interesting because I mean, going back to why don't they mention um, Melchizedek's family line or genealogy, here's a quote I found really helpful from one of the commentaries. Um, because of all that, verse 3, 7 verse 3, has said of him, this Melchizedek is one who has been made like the Son of God, the perfect tense indicating that he remains so. Not, indeed, as the church fathers thought, that is the Son of God, Jesus had no human genealogy and no successor, but that like Melchizedek, nothing, absolutely nothing, depended on the human genealogy of Jesus as far as his priesthood was concerned. So again, it's saying Melchizedek was a priest 
you know, in spite of his lack of connection to the tribe of Levi um, or having the right genealogy. And that's one of the big similarities um, or previews of Jesus. He didn't have that right priesthood, but that God says, I'm going to bring out of Judah um, to show that he's completely distinct. And he is the ultimate great high priest who um, would sacrifice himself on behalf of his people and take away their sins. And this is, again, a reminder that God does things the way he wants to and imposing our um, our sinful human parameters on God is to say, I know better than you do, God, or God, you're doing it the wrong way, which apparently was what some of these readers were thinking, like, no, uh, that that's not the way it works in terms of priesthood. But then the author of Hebrews is saying, look back to Melchizedek, he bucked the trend, and that's exactly what Christ is doing. He is the once for all sacrifice, the fulfillment of the law on our behalf. Um, and he is, he is God's um, son who was sent to take away our sins um, as that perfect once for all sacrifice. And that's a great um, contrast that the author builds up here. So a, a couple of thoughts on, on what you're saying. One, the thought that, you know, God can can arrange things like this if he desires. He can do something outside of the Levitical priesthood and isn't bound by that because he is he is God. I think that's that's a good point. I think the other the other thing to bring out with that though is that God reveals what he's doing outside of the, of the of the Levitical priesthood by giving us this information about Melchizedek particularly in Psalm 110 verse 4. So sure God can do whatever he wants and the the comfort in him doing what he wants in this case is that he told us what that was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's part of the comfort that's there in the mention of Melchizedek that it's what the writer of, of Hebrews is, is saying to those is, look, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that God went outside the Levitical priesthood in this way, because he can do that, and he told us he was going to here in Psalm 110. The other, the other thought that, that came to mind as you were talking, and I, I really appreciate the way that you, you talked about the genealogy of Jesus, because that was something I was grappling with in my own mind a little bit in yesterday's text, especially when the, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, he doesn't have, Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy. Well, well, Jesus does, and I think, you know, obviously that human genealogy would be important to the writer of Hebrews, because he's already emphasized very much that Christ has shared in our flesh and blood, that he is like us as his brothers in every respect. So clearly, the writer of Hebrews here does not intend to overthrow the humanity or the, the genealogy of Christ in that sense. He very much wants us to hold on to the fact that Jesus is our big brother, uh, whom we can approach. But he wants us also to know that we can approach him as our high priest. And so lest that genealogy that's given, you know, in both Matthew and Luke, throw us off, like, well, okay, he's, he's my brother, but how can he be my high priest if this is his genealogy? That's where Melchizedek comes as a, a very important figure in that, so that he can both, he can be both things. He can be the son of God, who is my brother, and also my great high priest. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes me think of... Um the reference to Jesus being David's son and sure. David's Lord, right? Yeah. He's Which is Psalm 110. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, just a, a verse before, yeah, verse one instead of verse four, but that's Psalm 110 also. Right. Like, I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> I don't think so either. Yeah, Psalm, Psalm 110 is a key uh, Old Testament passage for the New Testament writers, not only the, the writer of Hebrews, but but others as well. So let's let's start working our way toward that quote, because that's that's where the writer of Hebrews is going here. In verse 15 and following, he says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest 
not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That gets us to that reference from Psalm 110, verse 4. Help us into those verses, Pastor Ackman. Yeah, he brings in this reference to Psalm 110 uh, in chapter 7, verse 16. And again, this references the eternal nature of Jesus' priesthood, contrasting it with the temporary nature of the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. And so imagine if the priesthood of the Old Testament were still the norm and there were no promise from God for a better or perfect priesthood that would replace it. Um, Each priest dies and then succeeded by another and they would perpetually offer imperfect sacrifices to God without hope of something that would actually give them complete um, salvation um, without you know, these sacrifices and, and the reliance on this system is um, the downfall of it is its hopelessness. If you go back to the Levitical priests, they serve an important function, but they're not, um, they're, you might say means to an end. I don't know if that's a right way to characterize it, but there's something that are building towards something else. Um, and it's, it's, it's really kind of akin to, again, works righteousness. You can't do enough to satisfy the law of God which is exactly like the Old Testament priesthood. Um, it was never meant to satisfy God's requirements for salvation. Um, it atoned for the people's sins when the sacrifices were given, certainly, but it always pointed to that perf- perfect sacrifice of Christ um, and that once-for-all offering on the cross that eliminated the need for those Old, ta- Old Testament sacrifices that kind of pointed to it or prefigured it. Um, and so I know a helpful image that I think of, and I know a lot of Lutheran theologians, um, just Lutheran Christians in general, uses the, they call it the heavenly courtroom, right? And what does it look like with um, Jesus interceding on our behalf? Because that's the whole idea of a high priest, right? He goes between God and man, and he's the intercessor, the mediator, um, who brings the requests for, um, you know, forgiveness, pardon, salvation, on God's behalf and or on their behalf to God and uh, they need someone to go before them because they can't they're unrighteous and so we say in the heavenly courtroom where the defendants were on trial for sin Satan is the accuser presenting the evidence of hey look here's how they've broken the Ten Commandments they have not um, had you as the only God they've feared loved and trusted other things before you um, they haven't kept your name holy. They haven't kept the Sabbath. They haven't done all these things, loving their neighbors themselves. And here's the evidence, you know, it's, it's a mile long, even longer. Um, and then, uh, Jesus, you could say is our legal defense that, um, brings not our works, not any righteousness that we have, um, as evidence for we're innocent. No, he presents himself. Uh, he's, he's, his own evidence uh, for innocence, and he's that great high priest that intercedes. So Satan's evidence should condemn us, but God declares us innocent on behalf of Jesus or or for the sake of Jesus um, because his perfect life covers our sin. Um, And it's a great image, and I love the comfort that the author moves to here as well, talking about there's the phrase, it's really interesting, um, he talks about an He's not um, a priest on the basis of a legal requirement. So really doubling down on this has nothing to do with 
bloodline or being in the right family, but by the power of an indestructible life. And what is that referring to? It's the resurrection of Christ, whom God raised from the dead. Um, so his priesthood is based on the fact that God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And then you go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul says, Christ, who had died but is alive again, can never die again. Um, death has no hold over him. We sing that as one of our New Testament canticles in the service of prayer and preaching. It's a really wonderful little hymn. Um, so we sing that you're a priest forever because you're not, he can't die again. His priesthood is never going to be eliminated. So you never have to worry about what if Jesus dies again and I don't have someone that can intercede on my behalf um, and bring his perfection to God as evidence for, you know, they are sinful, but my righteousness has been given to them. Um, it's doing that, but it's also to, again, reemphasizing the contrast between Levite priests and Jesus. They die, he doesn't. They need to be replaced. Jesus will never be replaced. Um, he is superior. And if you think about going back to them, you're, you're, you're crazy, you know, because Jesus is perfect and, and he can't really do anything more than he's doing in this book, especially here. It's just such a, uh, a potent argument. And oh, I don't sure. know how the years would have, you know, taken that, but it's very difficult to say after reading that, oh, well, no, I still right. want to go back to the Levitical priesthood, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. What What's remarkable to me about, again, just thinking about this sermon as a whole and knowing where he's headed, so he's he's been emphasizing here, especially in this chapter, the nature that this is an eternal thing. We've got an indestructible life here earlier. In the previous section, when he was talking about Melchizedek, that you know you don't have either his his birth or his death recorded in Scripture. Thinking about where this sermon is headed, you know, well, Jesus died. So how does that play into all this? And the writer of Hebrews is going to pick up that argument later and talk about the importance of. Christ's death in in sealing the covenant. Again, that's going to be coming up in chapter 9 we'll, when we get more into the idea of sacrifices and how Christ fulfills that part of the Levitical, or the not the, the, priest, the priestly work, not the Levitical priestly work, but the priestly work of sacrificing. He's going to fulfill that and how his death doesn't, say, undo this matter of his indestructible life, but rather is part and parcel with all of it. So yeah, his resurrection is very much in view, and his ongoing eternal life that will never end, very much in view here, but that doesn't mean that his death was somehow a bump in the road. Rather, right. the, the author's going to show us later how his death is very much a part of his priestly work and, and continues to make Jesus that priest better than this Levitical priesthood. So again, it's just, just thinking about all that together, it, it's a marvelous sermon. I'd love to preach this way. <laughs> Yeah, you ever need a last-minute sermon, just whip out. That's Hebrews. right. Read the book of Hebrews and, and see <laughs> see what happens. That's right. That's right. It's a marvelous, marvelous text to study and to to ponder and to consider, as you said at the very outset, pointing us to Jesus over and over again. So as as our section concludes, then in verses eighteen and nineteen, the writer says this: For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Now, help us first into that, that phrase in verse 18, the, the, on the one hand, this former commandment is set aside because it's, it's weakness and uselessness. Talk to us about this former commandment and its weakness and uselessness. Well, 
Uh, again, it goes back to the law was not bad. Um, God gave it for a reason. And I'm going to reference that hymn we have in the Lutheran service book, The Law of God is Good and Wise. I'll, I'll reference that in a little bit. But that's the point. Um, he did not give the law to say, here's the way that you get to me. Um, climb your way back. You messed it up. Now you got to fix it. You know, that's not what God was saying. Um, it really hinges on the better hope phrase that comes in a little bit. Um, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Um, I had these, Im I was trying to get images of things that are weak and useless the way you're trying to use them. Uh, and these are terrible, but um, I thought of trying to fix a fender bender with scotch tape. Um, useless, weak, right? Uh, maybe gorilla tape. I don't know. <laughs> um, or, or I had the image of like trying to hammer a nail in with a pencil or maybe like you've got a tent peg that you're trying to nail down with a tack hammer or something. Like it just doesn't get the job done. It's frustrating. It's useless. Um, it's, it's, this is not the purpose of the law. Uh, to, to um, fix this problem on our behalf of unrighteousness. It's given to curb unrighteousness, to show us our sin, to show us what it means to live faithfully according to the will of God. We refer to the three uses of God's law in our Lutheran theology. But if you're depending on the law for your hope, it's a small and a weak and an ultimately a dangerous hope, really. It's, it's not really a hope at all, even. Um, because it's going to leave you constantly empty and frustrated, thinking that if I can just do a little bit better, I'm going to gain God's favor. I'm going to attain the comfort and the security that I seek and crave. Um, and we also talk about how trying to pursue righteousness um, apart from Christ and depending on it apart from Christ, it either leads to um, pride where you might say, I don't need God since I'm doing so well obeying the law. Inevitably, that happens when you, excuse me, try to say, well, yeah, I, I know I'm forgiven. Now I just, I just want to know what to do. You know, that forgiveness stuff, you tell it to me every week, Pastor. I, I get that. But now please just give me these rules for living. And it's not that those are irrelevant, but that's not the primary tenet of Christianity. It's law and gospel, which the law... Um, and the gospel go together where the law, again, ultimately shows you you can't keep it. Um, and it's meant to drive you to the gospel, which says it's been kept for you in Christ. So it's either that or, you know, if, if you don't go on that far other side of the spectrum of pride, you're probably going to fall into despair is the whole opposite end of the spectrum where you might think I'm obeying the law so poorly. I don't even think God can help me now because I'm such a rotten, miserable person who can't seem to ever, you know, catch up on this treadmill of the law. I'm always falling behind, falling off. And then in between those two things is Christ. You know, he stands between those extremes of pride and despair with his righteousness. And that's where we get into the second part of this with verse 19. Um, For the law made nothing perfect or complete. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So that better hope is Jesus, who not not only allows us to draw near to God, but he allows us to stand before God in righteousness, um, because it's through the gift of faith in him we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not from ourselves, so that we can't boast, not based on works, 
that's how we're safe from our sins. That's a better hope than this small, insignificant, and ultimately destructive hope of, I think I, if I just do a little bit better, um, I'll be okay. And that's what Hebrews 4.15, if you go back to that just a few chapters earlier, makes so clear. It says, Christ, who is tempted in every way that we were yet without sinning, ever, um, that's what we rest our, hang our hat on, so to speak. We put all our eggs in this one basket of Jesus. Um, and I, I teach my confirmation kids this way. I use the example because they're, you know, in the thick of their classwork right now, and they've got tests and quizzes and all this. So you are judged completely by how you do on these tests and quizzes and class attendance. So I say, you know, imagine you get to class one day, and um, there's this pop quiz. You haven't studied it. Um, you can't pass it essentially and you take it and you get a failing grade right and then you know someone else walks in they're the only one that can pass it they get this perfect grade and then this teacher says well um, you all messed up royally uh, you failed but by my grace I'm going to credit the perfect score of this one student to all of you right and that's what God does he takes the perfect score of Jesus, so to speak, his righteousness and credits to uh, credits that to us through the gift of faith. So it's everything that the Lord Jesus did with his blameless, spotless, sinless, perfect life, his atoning death, his um, saving resurrection, all this stuff is given to us through no merit of our own in that gift of baptism, of course, when God creates faith through water and the word. It's, it's like a a pipeline that gets what Jesus from, you know, from that act of Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb, it carries it all the way to us here who are so far separated from it. Um, and Jesus is our great, perfect, blameless, merciful high priest um, who negates the need for other priests or more sacrifices. And he, he says, I am the better thing. Um, and I think of Psalm 136 that kind of mirrors that you're a high priest forever um 26 times psalm 136 says the steadfast love of god endures forever um and how does it endure forever well it's christ who will never die again who lives forever who always forgives our sins um, our eternal high priest and um and i i don't do how much time do we have left i don't know if we about can four reference. minutes okay four. well that's plenty of time too <laughs> i want to read this hymn um uh lsb 579 um, the law of God is good and wise. This It says it so well. I hope our congregations um, are familiar with it or sing it every so often. Uh, because if you want to know, how do, I, how do I think rightly about the law of God and then Christ with that? This says it well. So let me just read through this. The law of God is good and wise and sets his will before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress. So there's it reveals our sin, reveals God's will, reveals when we don't keep it. Verse 2, it, it's light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts that we may see our lost estate and turn from sin before too late. So drawing us away from any notion that we are basically good, as the world teaches. No, we're not. It shows that we are um, utterly corrupt. Our hearts are sinful from the moment we're conceived. Um, we have that sinful disease, that unrighteousness passed down from Adam. Um but then verse 3, to those who help in Christ have found 
and wood and works of love abound. It shows what deeds are his delight and should be done as good and right. That's the third use of the law when God brings us salvation. And then if some people argue, well, you don't need the law anymore. Well, no, um, God still has vocations, things for you to do. Um, here's the purpose of it. But then it goes back to verse 4. But those who scornfully disdain God's law shall then in sin remain. It's terror in their ear resounds and keeps their wickedness in bounds. And then verse 5, the law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify. And that really gets to the message of these verses that we've talked about. But then finally, this gets to the priestly vocation of Jesus, um, the priestly role that he has. To Jesus we for refuge flee, who from the curse has set us free, and humbly worship at his throne, saved by his grace through faith alone. I think that just sums it up quite well. Um, and, and that's maybe the best summary of this whole passage is Jesus, unlike these Levitical priests, is our priest forever. He's our great high priest. He eliminates the need for sacrifices by his own sacrifice. Um, he conquered death and lives forever. And we don't go to the law for our hope. We don't go to the Old Testament priesthood and try to keep that going. We turn to Christ as the last great high priest who surpasses all of them and will continue to intercede for us until the last day when we are raised from the dead and brought to eternal life where we won't need intercession anymore because there will be no more sin. We'll live without sin, without death. And boy, that's, that's, if that's not something to look forward to, I don't know what is. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and after you've sung hymn 579, just look at the opposing page and sing hymn 580. The gospel shows right. <laughs> the Father's grace. Which, which has very similar imagery when it comes to how we, how we go to Christ. So for example, in stanza two of that hymn, as the Lamb of God who made the atoning sacrifice, he gives uh, the souls with guilt oppressed and invites us to come to him and find eternal rest. So what the Levitical priesthood could not do, Christ has done as our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's what we've seen in this text, and we will continue to see in the book of Hebrews as he continues his sermon. Pastor Joel Heckman is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchie, Oklahoma. He has been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. You're very welcome. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this section of Hebrews chapter 7, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.